Thank you, thank you. Good morning, everyone. I am Joel Erickson. If you don't know me, I've been attending All Souls for about eight years, and I'm delighted to be here this morning to talk about George Herbert. Uh, if you'd go ahead and advance the slide. Our clicker is not... Okay, cool. Thank you. Let's pray. If you'll pray with me. For Gregory and Dunstan, George Herbert and John Keeble, and for all who praise God in poetry and song, thanks be to God. Go ahead and advance. I want to begin this morning uh, with a quote from the Chinese philosopher Mencius. When one reads the poems and the writings of the ancients, how could it be right not to know something about them as men? Hence, one should try to understand the age in which they have lived. This can be described as looking for friends in history. The context for the Mencius quote is in reference to what he calls the gentleman. Following Confucius, he takes the gentleman to be a certain kind of person, not merely of a certain social standing, but of superior, superior ethical quality, a man of virtue. He is suggesting that such a person would not merely seek out friends of a similar character in his or her own time and place, but all the way into the furthest recesses of time. This quote has stayed with me ever since I first encountered it in a book by the late sociologist Robert Bella, a book called Religion and Human Evolution. Um, as I've been meditating about our series this season for catechesis, All Saints for All Souls, this quote has returned to me. What if we approach the saints as looking for friends in history? As the Confucian gentleman looked for a special bond with other gentlemen, mutually reinforcing the life of virtue, might we, not all the more as Christians, look for such a relationship with other Christians? I'm thinking here of the kind of relationship Mark Clemens brought us back in November, Aylred's spiritual friendship, a relationship of mutual harmony spurring the other on to works of love. Just as we should look for such relationships with other Christians, right here and now in our own time and place, what prevents us from doing the same with our brothers and sisters in ages past, looking like Mencius for spiritual friends in history? Certainly the element of mutuality is strained a bit by the distance of space and time. This might feel like something of a one-way relationship. Um, but are we not all still living members of the same mystical body of Christ? of which even now we share a bond with the saints who have gone before. Might we not therefore find closer kinship with a fellow Christian, past or present, than Mencius could have ever hoped to found with one of his friends in history? The reason I bring this up is that this is how I have found myself approaching George Herbert. My interest in Herbert was sparked by someone's wise advice. Try to find a vocational patron saint someone who embodies the kind of person you think you might like to become. One of the first people who came to mind for me was George Herbert. I didn't really know much about him at the time. All I really knew is that he was a poet and an Anglican priest. But at the time, I was feeling my way into career change options, and the priesthood had become a serious contender. It was also on the heels of a personal revival of faith, which had been helped in part by poetry. So I have been pursuing a kind of friendship with Herbert over the last few years, mostly through his poetry. Like any relationship, uh, this has developed in fits and starts, 
given more or less energy and attention as life tugs me in different directions. But our All Saints for All Souls catechesis has given me an opportunity to take Mencius advice and learn something more of him as a man, as a Christian man whose life may help us fellow souls as we walk the same path to sainthood. So much for why I'm here this morning. But I say all this also to give you a caveat. As someone who is finding his way into a spiritual friendship with George Herbert, I do not stand before you as an expert, whether it be on 17th century Anglicanism, English history, poetry, or even George Herbert himself. So if you were hoping to hear an intro to the man from an expert, I am sorry in advance. You may be disappointed. Instead, I'm going to introduce you to a friend as I have come to know him. Um, go ahead and advance. I want to begin with biography. Uh, I know we don't have a lot of time this morning, and I do want to get into the poetry, so I'm going to do what I'm calling bi biography by the bullets. So let's go. Um, George Herbert did not live very long. He was born toward the end of Queen Elizabeth I's reign in 1593, and he died a month short of his 40th birthday in 1633. His life begins in Montgomery. I think this is working right here on the border of uh, Wales and England. Um, he was the seventh of ten children, all of whom lived into adulthood, which is no small feat for any family in the 17th century. The Herberts were of noble stock, enjoying land and titles since the end of the War of the Roses when Henry VII gave them Montgomery. He moves, ab uh, he moves around a little bit um, as a child. He goes to Eton-upon-Severn. Uh, after his father dies when he's just three, he's briefly in Oxford, and then they kind of settle at uh, Charing Cross in London, uh, where he's educated at Westminster School, which is led at the time by Lancelot Andrews, another famous Anglican. Um, that we hear here sometimes. Uh, George Herbert is a brilliant student, and in 1609 he is picked for Trinity College, Cambridge, at the age of 16. So he heads off here, um, where he spends quite a bit of his life, and uh, he thrives there. He becomes a fellow of, of Trinity College after graduating, and by the age of 26, he achieves the goal of his youthful ambition. He becomes University Orator in 1620. Now, this position paves the way for him to pursue a career at court, possibly as ambassador or secretary of, secretary of state, given his um, skill in, in language. But you'll see here that I've called out a period in blue here, um, period of crisis, and the pins on the map, if you can see them, are also in blue that correspond to this, this period. Um, the book I read to prepare for today is called Music at Midnight, The Life and Poetry of George Herbert by John Drury. Um, I like his summary of Herbert's life. He describes it in a nutshell as a quiet life with a crisis in the middle of it. This six-year span from 1624 to 1630 is that crisis period. Once Herbert had attained the university oratorship, the appeal of the academy and the career opportunities it opened faded. By 1624, he had grown weary and by all accounts depressed. He takes a leave of absence, and later that year, he becomes a deacon and canon of Lincoln Cathedral. Now, that fact alone is not terribly unusual. He had been toying with divinity and a possible church career since his early years at Cambridge, 
and as a fellow of Trinity, becoming a deacon was, I guess, part, sort of expected. Um, but he was clearly moving away from the trajectory his life had been on, and to the surprise of many, from the worldly promise that life had in store. During this period, Herbert feels lost. He struggles to find purpose in his work as he winds down the oratorship at Cambridge and tries to find projects he can pour himself into. He takes up restoring a dilapidated church at Leighton Bromswald, right here-ish. Um, his mother dies during this period, and he was also always very close to her, so this is quite hard for him. Um, I've called out Little Gidding very close to Leighton, Bra Leighton Bromswald as well. Um, just because a good friend of his, Nicholas Farrar, um, was the head of a religious community there, and uh, Herbert drew a lot of encouragement from him and that community during this period. But all in all, this is a time of aimlessness and frustration for Herbert. But by the late 1620s, things start moving again. He gets married to Jane Danvers in 1629, and married life goes a long way to lifting him out of his depression. A year later, Herbert becomes a priest, after the little rectory at Bemerton opens up. Bemerton's way down here in the south. Uh, one of his relatives, William Herbert, who is Earl of Pembroke, gets King Charles to agree to give the vacancy to Her Herbert without bothering to ask him first. The priesthood had been on Herbert's radar. Um, it was a natural next step as a, as a deacon. Um, but he always approached the priesthood with a sense of fear and trembling. He had a lot of reverence for the office and wasn't sure he was up to it or worthy of it. Um, so it's after some hesitation that he finally agrees to take the rectory. But what we see of George Herbert in these final three years of his life as a priest, a man, we see a man who has found his vocation at last, not in a life of prestige and fame, but in ministering to a small community of simple country people. You can go ahead and advance, I think. The first poem I want to share uh, highlights some of these biographical, biographical points we've been going through. It's Herbert's answer to all those who might question his decision to abandon the trappings of worldly success and instead take the quiet life of a country parson. And you should all have the poems we're going to read on your handouts. First one, it's called The Quip. The merry world did on a day with his train bands and mates agree to meet together where I lay, and all in sport to jeer at me. First, beauty crept into a rose, which when I plucked not, sir, said she, tell me, I pray, whose hands are those? But thou shalt answer, Lord, for me. Then money came, and chinking still, what tune is this, poor man, said he, I heard in music you had skill, but thou shalt answer, Lord, for me. Then came brave glory puffing by, in silks that whistled who but he. He scarce allowed me half an eye, but thou shalt answer, Lord, for me. Then came quick wit and conversation, and he would needs a comfort be, and to be short make an oration, but thou shalt answer, Lord, for me. Yet when the hour of thy design to answer these fine things shall come, Speak not at large. Say, I am thine. And then they have their answer home. I love this poem. To me, it speaks both to Herbert's insecurities and to his faith. 
The allures of this world come to him in forms that were particularly difficult for him to turn down. We see the world presented as a leader of a troop of fawning sycophants, his train bands and his mates, each personified by one of the charms of Herbert's world. First, beauty as a rose, Herbert was a highly aesthetically attuned man, and like many of the gentry of his time, a great appreciator of English gardens. His stepfather, for instance, became obsessed with redesigning one of the gardens on an estate he acquired after Herbert's mother died. And we get the sense sometimes that there's a part of Herbert that would have gladly just joined him and done that for the rest of his days. So beauty here takes the form of a rose and rebukes him when he doesn't pluck it. She essentially says, are those someone else's hands? Why didn't you pluck, pick me? What's wrong with you? Again, money comes along and makes sort of a double appeal. As a gentleman, George Herbert had expensive tastes, but he wasn't the richest of nobles, especially not as a student. We have letters of his during his time at Cambridge asking his stepfather for money. He was also quite musically inclined, though, and gifted. So money here plays in part on his perceived need uh, for money and in part on his musical interests. I thought you were a music man, money says. Can't you appreciate the music a few extra coins in your pocket makes? Each stanza seems to up the ante. Next comes glory. It doesn't even speak to him because, of course not, it's glory. Fame doesn't pay you any mind. That's the whole point. That's what makes it so appealing. This is the life of court, cozy with the king calling to him. But even more important to the intellectual George Herbert is quick wit and conversation. This was the stuff of his career as university orator. This was where he truly wielded real power, being able to make an oration to bend the wills of his hearers, to make them feel, to persuade, to be a comfort if needed. But his answer to each of these suitors is the same. Silence on his part and deferral to someone else. To ask instead that the God to whom, for whom, he sacrificed it all would answer for him. And then in the last stanza, he has the pluck to tell God how to answer for him. I love this about George Herbert. Um, and this is a theme throughout his poetry. For all his deep reverence for God and for all his willingness to defer to God in his providence, um, he doesn't hesitate to tell God what to do. But what he tells God to do, I think, shows you how formed by God he has been. Speak not at large, he says. Don't give them a lengthy, flowery oration like I might do as Cambridge orator. Just tell them I am yours. That's all the answer they need. Go, uh, yeah, go ahead. All right. <laughs> um, we've spent a lot of time over the past few years uh, reflecting on our identity as a parish as we attempt to beat a path between the poles of high church on the one hand and evangelical on the other. Matt Milliner set this in context for us again last month in his All Souls Guide for the Perplexed, which you may remember. I think uh, George Herbert is very much a kindred spirit for us and for what we're trying to do um, on this count. 200 years before John Henry Newman, he is an Anglican of the Via Media, or the, or the Middle Way. Um, I want to read next the poem, British Church, on your handout. Yeah, go ahead and advance. I joy, dear mother, when I view thy perfect lineaments and hue, both sweet and bright. 
Beauty in thee takes up her place, and dates her letters from thy face when she doth write. A fine aspect in fit array, neither to mean nor yet to gay, shows who is best. Outlandish looks may not compare, for all they either painted are or else undressed. She on the hills which wantonly allureth all in hope to be by her preferred, hath kissed so long her painted shrines, that even her face by kissing shines for her reward. She in the valley is so shy of dressing that her hair doth lie about her ears. While she avoids her neighbor's pride, she wholly goes on the other side, and nothing wears. But dearest mother, what those miss, the mean, thy praise and glory is, and long may be. Blessed be God, whose love it was, to double-mote thee with his grace, and none but thee. Now, this is probably one of my least favorite poems by George Herbert. Uh, it's a bit cheeky, self-congratulatory, and at worst, a tad nationalistic. Um, we are not, after all, in the business of making Anglicans, but of making Christians. That said, I think it gives us a good example of a classically Anglican middle way between the Catholic and Protestant churches. She on the hills is, of course, the Catholic Church, the hills here referring to the mountains around Rome. Herbert critiques Rome's overly ostentatious piety, implying that some of the gold paint on the icons has rubbed off on the worshippers' faces, giving them a faux aura of holiness. This pretentious display is their reward, suggests Herbert in a none-too-thinly-veiled allusion to Jesus' critique of the Pharisees' pious displays. On the other hand, she in the valley is an obvious reference to Calvin's Geneva, and Herbert would here be thinking of the Puritan contingent in England of his time. They go too far in the other direction, being so humble as to eschew all ornament or clothing altogether. The Anglicans, of course, hit the right note by embracing the mean, suggesting that good, healthy moderation is God's special gift to English spirituality. But this is also one of Herbert's later poems, and it's entirely possible that making a satirical jab at even the Anglican brand of dogmatism that's beginning to bring things to a head in the wake of King James' death um, and the rise of his son, King Charles, um, that you know, these are the decades, after all, that are leading up to the English Civil War, so it's entirely possible that he's lampooning everybody in, in this poem. Um, but there's another poem I want to share uh, that makes me think of George Herbert as a saint for all souls um, in particular. Uh, yeah, you can go ahead and, and switch. Prayer one on your handouts. Prayer, the church's banquet. Angels age, God's breath in man returning to his birth, the soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage, the Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth, engine against the almighty, sinner's tower, reversed thunder, Christ's side piercing spear, the six days world transposing in an hour, a kind of tune which all things hear and fear, softness, and peace, and joy, and love, and bliss, exalted manna, gladness of the best, heaven in ordinary, man well-dressed, the Milky Way, the bird of paradise, church bells beyond the stars heard, 
the soul's blood, the land of spices, something understood. This is one of my favorites. So many wonderful phrases and rich images in this poem. God's breath in man returning to his birth. In prayer we give back to God that which he first gave to us, our very breath, the breath of life. Engine against the almighty sinner's tower. Think here of siege works. Prayer gives us unworthy sinners, like the attackers of a castle, the means to storm the very heavens, to break through to a God who might seem hopelessly walled up against us in unapproachable, impenetrable holiness. Exalted manna, what is this but the elevated host? And gladness of the best, but an allusion to the Eucharistic wine as our participation in the water-turned wine of Cana, the best saved for last. I love the last phrase, something understood. Who could ever claim to understand prayer? It is as foreign, as exotic as the Milky Way, the bird of paradise, or the land of spices. And yet it is intimate. It is near, like coming home, somehow familiar. And in that way, without perhaps understanding it at all, it is something understood. But I think there's a special resonance for us here at All Souls in the third line, the soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage. Of course, Heart and Pilgrimage was the title of our catechesis series here a few years ago. But the soul in paraphrase is, I think, especially interesting for us. What does it mean to be a soul? It means, in short, to pray. And that's as true of us here at All Souls as it is of any soul, whether he or she knows it or not. We are nothing if we are not a community gathered for in and by prayer. Prayer is who we are. It is our very lifeblood, as the penultimate line of that poem would say. And prayer was very important to George Herbert. He preferred prayer to pe preaching. Sermons are monologues, he thought. All power is with the preacher. The hearers are totally passive. Much better by far is prayer especially the back and forth of public or common prayer. In public prayer, you are not alone. You join in with others. And as far as Herbert was concerned, the more the merrier. In one of the lines from his lengthy poem, The Church Porch, he says, pray with the most, for where most pray is heaven. Go ahead and uh, advance the slide. Um, Herbert's commitment to prayer, I think, is beautifully exemplified in his restoration of the church at Leighton Bromswald, which is what we're, the inside of which we're seeing here. Um, in an unusual move for his time, he commissioned two identical canopied pulpits on either side of the screen, which you can see here. They're basically mirror images of each other. Um, one was for preaching, and one was for the prayers of the people. As Herbert's first biographer, Isaac Walton, says, by Herbert's order, the reading pew and the pulpit, reading pew is the prayer, um, prayer pulpit, uh, were a little distance from each other, and both of an equal height. For he would say, they should neither have a precedency or priority of the other, but that prayer and preaching, being equally useful, might agree like brethren, 
and have an equal honor and estimation. Now here again, Herbert is trying to strike a balance between Roman Catholic extremes and Protestant tendencies. This time, he's aiming squarely at the Puritans. The radical Puritans of his day made no secret of their high estimation for preaching. It was all about the word for them and the word preached. They would make elaborate pulpits adorned with biblical texts to embody this conviction, and they would browbeat their congregations for hours with lengthy, lengthy sermons. So by commissioning two pulpits on the same level, of the same shape and design, Herbert is deliberately countering this overemphasis on the preached word. As uh, John Drury comments, pulpits are the perches of power, where preachers dominate their audiences. Prayer, by contrast, is an open and attentive submission in which all are equal and waiting. Herbert used church architecture and design to speak theologically, much as we have done here at All Souls with the little space we have been given. Again, as Matt reminded us, uh, from all the beautiful artwork we see around us provided by fellow souls to even kind of reclaiming some of the things we didn't do, like the ten lights for the Ten Commandments, the eight windows for the Beatitudes and the like, um, feels very much in keeping with uh, with. Herbert's vision for uh, Leighton Bromswald. I think you can move, yeah. Um, and that actually serves as a segue into the last example I'd like to share of how George Herbert might especially be a saint for all souls. This time it's an anecdote offered by Isaac Walton. Again, he's the first biographer of um, George Herbert. He writes A Life of George Herbert around 1670. It's more or less reliable. It's a bit, um, bit of a hagiography. Uh, these are the years after the Restoration, and he wants to paint a picture of what an ideal Anglican priest should look like. So he's very um, celebratory of, of Herbert, and some of his anecdotes are more reliable than others. This one is considered to be a, a fairly reliable one. Um, the setup is that uh, George Herbert went twice a week to Salisbury Cathedral, where he attended Sung Evensong. And he would often go early uh, so he could get together with friends and they would just play music at someone's house. Um, I think I have included this in your handout so you can follow along. Um, Walton writes, In another walk to Salisbury, he saw a poor man with a poorer horse that was fallen under his load. They were both in distress and needed present help, which Mr. Herbert, perceiving, put off his canonical coat and helped the poor man to unload, and after to load his horse. The poor man blessed him for it, and he blessed the poor man. And so was like the good Samaritan, that he gave him money to refresh both himself and his horse, and told him that if he loved himself, he would be merciful to the beast. Thus he left the poor man, and at his coming to his musical friends at Salisbury, they began to wonder that Mr. George Herbert, who used to be so trim and clean, came into that company so soiled and discomposed. But he told them the occasion. And when one of the company told him he had disparaged himself by so dirty an employment, his answer was that the thought of what he had done would prove music to him at midnight, and that the omission of it would have upbraided and made discourse in his conscience whensoever he would pass by that place. For if I be bound to pray for all that be in distress, 
I am sure that I am bound, so far as it is in my power, to practice what I pray for. And though I do not wish for the like occasion every day, yet let me tell you, I would not willingly pass one day of my life without comforting a sad soul or showing mercy. And I praise God for the occasion. And now, let's tune our instruments. The reason this story makes me think of all souls is that it exemplifies beautifully what it looks like to take seriously the dismissal of our service here each week. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Once we have shared Christ's body and blood, drunk from his cup, we are sent out in the Spirit's power to live his risen life, to bring life to others, and to give light to the world. As Herbert puts it, we go out to practice what we pray for. This is what we see Herbert doing as he assumes the role of the Good Samaritan for a poor soul on the road. And in a metaphor that must certainly resonate with the many talented musicians here at All Souls, in so living we tune our instruments, becoming more holy as we follow Christ. So that if we should ever wake in the middle of the night, it would not be due to the restlessness of a guilty conscience, but it will rather be an occasion for praise, for making music at midnight. Go ahead. We don't really have detailed knowledge of when any of Herbert's poems were written. He wrote them all privately throughout the course of his life. Uh, but at one point, some people think around 1623, when he's maybe 30, he commissioned a scribe to write out about 78 of his English poems. The document does survive. It's called the Williams Manuscript because it resides in a certain Dr. Williams library in London. I don't really know much about that, but that's why it's called the Williams Manuscript. Um, it, it gives us a glimpse into Herbert's writing process and allows us to see which poems were at least earlier than the final manuscript he gives to his friend on his death that goes on to get published under the title of The Temple. I find the Williams Manuscript interesting because of how it ends. Throughout all the variances we find there of his many poems and the order he has them in versus the order they appear in the temple, he very clearly intended even then to end his works with the same poem he puts at the end of the temple. It's been his intention to end with this poem, Love Three, um, for a very long time. And this is a fitting conclusion to his works because as you read George Herbert's poetry, you'll find that love is the all-conquering character and theme of his work. While just as Herbert's high opinion, while we just talked about Herbert's high opinion of public prayer, what we actually find in his poetry is an intimate record of his private prayer life. His poems are really all prayers to God. And the God who meets him over and over again in those prayers truly is love. I think this is borne out in Herbert's final words, as recorded again by Isaac Walton. On his deathbed, he gave his book of poetry, his life's work, to be delivered to his friend, Nicholas Farrar in Little Gidding, saying, Sir, I pray deliver this little book to my dear brother Farrar, and tell him that he shall find in it a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus, my master, and in whose service I have now found perfect freedom. Desire him to read it 
And then, if you think it may turn to the advantage of any dejected poor soul, let it be made public. If not, let him burn it, for I and it are less than the least of God's mercies. There are a couple of poems that I've included in the handout um, that strike me as, as great examples of this theme of love, um, dialogue and discipline. Um, I think, yeah, in the interest of time, we're going to skip over those. Um, go ahead and go home and enjoy them. George Herbert's feast day is this coming Wednesday, so maybe you can carve out a little time, read some of his poems, be encouraged. Um, instead, I'd like to conclude this morning, as Herbert always did, with Love 3. Um, I'll read it, and then we can open it up for any questions or discussions that we have in the time remaining. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand, and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. I'll open it up for questions or discussions. I'll start with love three always makes me think of the prayer of humble access, right? Your love compels us to come in. Our hearts were unclean. Our hearts were unprepared. You share your bread with sinners. So cleanse and feed us that we may sit and eat in your kingdom, right? Sterling. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, yeah, I found, I found that interesting. And just the, the way that, the way that this, the space would um, shape the way that the, the whole congregation would think about prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And if you've seen some of these old churches, you, you can kind of see, um, you'll appreciate the, the counterpoint it's making, because some of these pulpits are, you have to climb multiple stairs to get into them. They really are perches of power, as um, Drury calls them. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mark. It's not too personal. Could you talk a little bit about your own friendship with, with Herbert? As you... Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah, I, I think um, I mentioned, you know, poetry had, had a, played a, a role in sort of revivifying my own faith um, after a kind of period of, dry, you know, a dryness, I guess, uh, wandering away a little bit. But um, part of what it did was that it was an avenue 
to let me feel again and to let feeling be connected with um, the faith. And Herbert's poetry uh, played a role in that. And I think what I was attracted to was his piety, which I think comes through in these very personal poems, these very personal addresses to God. Um, you can tell that he's a man who knows the Psalms very well. They read like the Psalms. Sometimes he's angry with God. You know, he's telling God what to do sometimes. Sometimes he's very de deferential. Um, and, but consistently, as I mentioned, you know, the Jesus he meets in those poems, the God he meets, is a God of love. You know, and, and that, um, it, it sounds like the Jesus I meet too, you know, and, and that, that draws me to him, yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, when my friendship has mostly been just reading his poetry, and now I've picked up a book to prepare for this to find out a little bit more about his life, which was also interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think it's a I think it's a way to both effectively speak to um, the forces that are influencing him like in in the quip I'm thinking of you know um, these these various things that really did tempt him you know uh, he's not just randomly picking the you know the um, personifications that he chooses for that. Um, but he also doesn't have to name names either. He doesn't have to get too specific. He can sort of um, give the power a personage and then imagine a scene in which it plays out in a way that I think, um, almost like the Greek myths illustrate something that was conceptually meaningful to those people by giving them names and letting them play out in a narrative. I think he's doing something similar in a lot of his poems, giving ideas and concepts, names and placing them in sort of narrative situations. Yeah. I wonder, maybe since this, I understand you said this poem is kind of about um, his own, like his own struggle to um, kind of choose the right path. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the personification serves the purpose of taking these temptations and changing them from objects into, um, you know, it's no longer an object that he can obtain for himself now he said the person mm. he could become mm. yeah. or, yeah. or it's like a peer. Now it's another it's operating as another agent which is exerting almost like pure like social pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I really like that. I think that's good. Yeah, Bethany. Is there evidence if, if his uncle wanted to be this priest, this tiny parish? Um, is there evidence that other people 
No, no, it's, and I don't even know, yeah, I don't know that, um, I don't know how distant this relation is. Like Herbert is just, it's a name, uh, it's, a, it's a noble name and they're all sort of related. Uh, and I think this opens up in this relation's domain. And he's like, oh, you know, th this guy, he's a relation, right? He's, he's one of mine, why don't we give it to him? It's a tiny little rectory. It's very tiny. Um, so it's not like he's giving him this, this great gift by any standards of the society of the day. He's be given this very tiny country parish. Um, and everybody would meet his hesitation like, dude, what? Just, just take it. You know, I mean, what's the big deal? You know, he's coming to it. It's a, it, I would become a priest, and I'm not sure I'm worthy of that. I'm not sure I'm called to it. But everybody else would be like, look, you gave up on you gave up on the goods a long time ago when you didn't run with that ordership to a life at court. What's the big deal? Just take this parish. You know, it's not actually a great gift to the people of his time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that sort of struck me from your description of, again, those not dueling um, pulpits, but those mm. equal yeah. sort of the marshalling of his privilege when it comes mm. to that. Mm, yeah, yeah. And how his attention to the aesthetic yes. form of content, how that's so meaningful. And I hadn't really thought that in terms of, you know, if you have that sort of form awareness, even, you know, someone who cannot read can see the shape. Yes, and so yes. And sort of that seems to be a through line in his life and all of his writing and his, you know, architectural right. influence as well. Right, yeah. And he has, a, he has a poem in a similar vein, um, praising stained glass for a similar purpose, right? Because it can be a teacher um, where words fail, right? And it, it, many of the stained glass he would have seen would go on to get wrecked in the English Civil War too, you know? So, I mean, he, he does get spared um, that tragedy, but he's feeling those tensions build um, as his life draws to a close. Yeah. We're done? All right. Thank you all very much.